0: Welcome to the Inked Film Podcast, where we read the book, and then see the movie. I'm Luke. And I'm James. This week we discuss the first five chapters of J.R.R. Tolkien's 1954 fantasy novel, The Fellowship of the Ring, Part 1 of The Lord of the Rings. Still round the corner there may wait a new road or a secret gate, and though I oft have passed them by, a day will come at last when I shall take the hidden paths that run west of the moon, east of the sun. James. The year is 1954. Rock Around the Clock is on the radio by Bill Haley and the Comets. The Tonight Show is first aired with Steve Allen as the host. Marilyn Monroe is married to Mary's Joe DiMaggio and Elvis Presley begins his music career. Also Fellowship of the Ring by J.R.R. Tolkien is published.
1: Sounds like a good year man. This is post-World
0: War II right it's just a few years over now and this book comes out and and Famously, a lot of people compare it to, uh, to the war and, and think that Tolkien was inspired by it, um, which he was not a huge fan of. Uh, he, he even said that he dislikes allegory in, in all of its forms. But yeah, I just wanted to introduce uh, where the world was at when this book came out, because I think that's important to remember, too.
1: Yeah, because it, it's such a, an interesting story for that time. Like this wasn't the this wasn't the norm. This wasn't what was necessarily popular. Oh no! So he's releasing this into a very different world than we're in now.
0: So we should also probably say what this podcast is for anyone who might be checking out uh, Ink Film for the first time. We are going to read this book in three parts, talk about it at length. Then we're going to get into the movie. You know, the two thousand three Peter Jackson movie, I T- believe. Two thousand one. 2001? Okay, sorry. I yeah. mixed it up with a different one, probably. So, I guess we should also talk about why we are starting here and not with The Hobbit, right?
1: Yeah. The way that I experienced these this story is uh, the first movie came out in 2001. I saw the movie, and then I went back and read all three books, which are Fellowship, Two Towers, and Return of the King. Yeah. And then I went back to read The Hobbit, and then Two Towers and, and Return of the King came out as films. So for me, this is like my, we're kind of doing it in my order, but also it's the order that the the movies came out. So it's since Fellowship of the Ring, the film came out first. We figured that was the first one that was introduced as as a book and a movie to audiences.
0: I began with The Hobbit. I grew up with The Hobbit. I watched the animated series. Huge fan. Um, I wasn't as big a fan of Fellowship of the Ring. I watched some of the animated series of that and tried to read the books, but they were a little bit too old for me, I think, at the time. It feels weird a little bit for me to start with Fellowship, but I agree. I think because it's the first movie that Peter Jackson made, it would be weird to jump ahead to like the last movies he made, uh, you know, in this world and then go backwards. So I think from the movie standpoint, it makes the most sense to start with Fellowship. And then if, yeah, one day we down the road we get to The Hobbit, we get, then that's how we'll do it. Definitely. We also aren't going to do the two towers right after this. I wanted to point that out so people aren't disappointed when they see that. Um, we're going to break this up a little bit because we don't we don't want this podcast to become all about Lord of the Rings all the time. Um, as fun as that might be.
1: I'm the kind of person that learned to like save your dessert, so like I want to <laughs> split it. you know what I mean? I want this yeah, to last
0: right yeah, we'll draw it out and we'll use it when we don't have like a, a like a new release coming out we can We can fill in the gaps with this. But yeah, so we plan to do the other two movies, uh, you know, at least in this trilogy. But we're not going to do them back to back to back. So.
1: And I mean, we we could potentially eventually do the Hobbit as well, the Hobbit and the three Hobbit films, but we're not really we're thinking we do this trilogy first.
0: Yeah, we'll see where we go from there. But yeah, before we get into it, I also just wanted you to elaborate a little more about your your history with you know, these movies and these books and and maybe what they meant to you growing up or like how old you were when you saw them, that kind of stuff.
1: Okay. So I saw, I saw Fellowship in the theater when I was like eight, I think. Wow. So it was like seven or eight. And I mean, it completely blew me away. I was like, I was in love with it right away. And like, like I said, just as soon as I found out that it was book, that it was based on a book, I went and read Fellowship of the Ring and then read Two Towers and Return of the King. And it may have been a little mature for for me at that time. I may not have understood all the nuance and everything that was going on, but I really enjoyed it. Basically, the two things that were like huge in my childhood were Harry Potter and Lord of the Rings. Mm -hmm. So I was reading those a lot and what was crazy is that I didn't have anybody to tell me this is how you should read them or in this order or whatever. I mean, I knew Fellowship, Two Towers, Return of the King, but I eventually found out that The Hobbit was a thing. And I was like, oh, wow, did he make this like after the fact or what? Because I didn't really understand. And so I went and read The Hobbit and it was like more, more lighthearted and more of like a, just a fun adventure romp. And I loved it. And published, it was
0: published first. We should, right. It was published
1: first. So so yeah, I didn't know that, and and I I, th- I felt like it was just like this little extra piece of the universe that I got to experience after I had already gone through the whole the whole you know journey with the ring, mm-hmm. uh, and I thought that was so cool. I lo- I loved um, the Hobbit, and I still love the Hobbit. I think the Hobbit's a very like, pr- I mean, it was perfect for me at that time as well. I was like you know eight or nine, and that one connected to me even more than this trilogy did. At first, and and now I feel like I like this this story more.
0: Yeah, so I know I suspect you've seen the movies multiple times. Have you reread the books since you were a kid?
1: I haven't read through this trilogy in like ten to 12 13 years or something crazy like that.
0: Okay, so it's been a while. Yeah. So uh, my experience, uh, I already talked about my you know growing up loving The Hobbit. That's a book I reread multiple times. I, I loved the animated series. Um, and you know, I'm going to out myself a little bit here. Maybe, uh, not a true geek. Um, (laughs) I, I actually didn't read, I I read part of fellowship, but I was really into like Dragonlance and stuff at the time, which is just way more sword and sorcery, high advent, like fast adventure novels. Uh And so I, I remember not really getting into it and I had seen the animated series. So I knew the story a little bit. Um, and then the movie came out, and I really loved that. So, like after the movie came out, I I went and I read them, and I read um, I read all of Fellowship, I read all of Two Towers, but I kind of got bogged down, and I don't think I ever finished The Return of the King. Really? So I don't know that I've ever actually finished that book. Wow. So this this through the course of us covering this, I will I will now have finally read the entire trilogy, in you know in its entirety. That's
1: that'll be cool to experience. Yeah.
0: But yeah, you know I I'm kind of embarrassed to even say that because I feel like as a, someone who's written fantasy myself, like how dare I. But yeah. yeah, that's, that's the truth being real here.
1: You're familiar enough with the material from, you know, the story, you kind of yeah. know the ins and outs of it. Oh, that's something I should mention is that I, I make it, I make a point of watching this trilogy, uh, the extended editions, at least once a year. Really? Like I kinda, <laughs> yeah. At some point throughout the year, I'll be like, you know what? It's, it's about that time. So I watch the trilogy. <laughs> nice. Take a, make a weekend out of it.
0: Yeah. So the last thing I'll say about my reading experience with it is I haven't read these books Probably since, yeah, like when the movies came out around that time, maybe a little bit after I read them. So, yeah, it's been, I don't know, 10 10 to 15 years for me as well, Um, which I saw them when I was in high school, those movies. So they're very linked to that time of my life when I think back, although I have seen them many times since. But that's when I remember going to the theaters, you know? Yeah. Tolkien is, you know, the grandfather of what we consider like modern high fantasy, which directly impacts Dungeons and Dragons, which I played a ton of growing up. So, in that sense, the world of Tolkien and, and his his imagining of these creatures and these people is very had a very profound effect on my childhood and my entire life. So, in that sense, you know what I mean. Even though I haven't, fin- I didn't finish the third book, like I'm still very steeped in this stuff.
1: Yeah, it's it's so interesting to think about how like our idea of orcs and our idea of halflings and dwarves, like this is all. Be basically because of him like there other people had written about certain types of creatures that were like that but he's like really the one that like cemented it yeah
0: he popularized it yeah okay so that sounds like it's time to get into a little bit of bio about J.R.R. tolkien here so john ronald ruel tolkien was born in 1892 i did not know that those were his names did you had you ever heard that
1: no never
0: yeah john ronald ruel if I'm saying that correctly, which I might not be. He's uh, you know, he's an English writer, poet, philologist, uh, university professor, stutter, studied linguistics, fought in World War I, was going to be a code breaker in World War II, but I think it didn't end up working out. Um, he was a really interesting life, and I actually found out a bunch of cool stuff about him. He was close friends with C.S. Lewis, who wrote The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, you know, that series. Mm-hmm. Um, they were both, uh, they, they formed a writing group uh, famously called the Inklings, which I think is a fun little, fun little note because we, uh, at my program, we had, we had toyed with like calling ourselves something like that, like the new Inklings or something, but we didn't end up doing it. <laughs> That's cool. I
1: think we're going to go ahead and say that if any of our, any of our listeners want to refer to themselves as Inklings, they can do that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh yeah, I like that because it's film. Yeah. man, I love that. So, like we talked about before, other authors had published works of fantasy. He isn't like the person who invented fantasy. I think there is kind of a misconception out there about him that that you know what I mean. I, Lord Dunsany's, uh, I think it's called the King of Elfland's Daughter. Um, there's there's just a few like pretty well known books. Uh, Beowulf, who came obviously before him, that was a huge inspiration to Tolkien. Um, a lot of mytho- you know uh, mythology and stuff that really influenced him. But what he did is he popularized this kind of fantasy because he was so immensely popular and this series was so immensely popular. The genre as we know it sprung from him. And it's something that people writing today, you're always like, other than Martin now, who has become his own huge figure, there's kind of this like a uh, spectrum and people trying to figure out how Tolkien-esque you are, how Martin-esque you are, you know, or, you know, and then there's this like third group who you know, totally doesn't like these comparisons at all and wants to be something completely different. Mm-hmm. So there's, I don't know, it's interesting to, to know that these, these uh, that he still, even though he died in the 70s, like his, his, you know, uh, Patrick Rothfuss says his shadow is long. And you know what I mean? Like it's, it, he still is so influential in even writing today. Yeah. I
1: mean, its it's unbelievable the amount of impact that he's had. Because I can't even, I can't separate, when I think of fantasy, when somebody says the word fantasy, I think Tolkien.
0: Yeah, it's like almost, almost synonymous, right? I get that. So, as a child, uh, he was bitten by a large baboon spider. He said he claims that he doesn't remember it, but his like parents would like told him of this, right? And he he actually has no special hatred of spiders. Like he wasn't like someone who hated spiders when he grew up. But I can't help but think, you know, what I mean, like that influenced his writing because big yeah. spiders are like just a big part of the series. You know, without getting into what happens at the end. <laughs>
1: so when we were, when I, I mean, I was looking into Tolkien and. With the forward, which we'll get into in a little bit, I was so shocked to hear that he was so vehemently against the allegories that right. I felt like were like. I guess is it is it just one of those things where it's like, as a writer, you you would rather believe that that like this is all purely from you without any sort of like inspiration. Like, does that does that make you a better writer? Is that is that kind of the perspective he was coming from, or? Or do you do you actually believe that he was not in any way like influenced and and wrote the story along the lines of like the war and and some of the other things that that were obvious in my opinion that were kind of were allegories?
0: Well, he makes a good. Po- I mean, in the forward he talks about it specifically, and he says that he finds I think he finds it too banal to have a allegory be your story because as soon as you identify that that's what someone is doing. Then you're going to start predicting all of the story elements, mm-hmm. and and he I think he said that like he had become very good at 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 picking up on that, and whenever he would read a writer and he would rec- recognize that they were telling an allegorical story to represent you know something, whether it was like a war or you know you know uh, the story of Christ or whatever it might be, mm-hmm. that he would get bored because he would like understand like okay I know where this is going I, I can understand what the story beats are going to be now because I've identified this thing. So I think he didn't, like, that might be why he didn't want us to say that. But he does have a quote uh, in in, in the foreword. So here's the quote. An author cannot, of course, remain wholly unaffected by his experience. But the ways in which a story germ uses the soil of experience are extremely complex. And attempts to define the process are, at best, guesses from evidence that is inadequate and ambiguous.
1: Yeah, so I I think that's cool because... Like he's kind of he's kind of acknowledging the fact that like a lot of things that he saw in the war, things that were going on, did affect kind of his point of view. But I just thought that being so against it seemed to me, I I felt like like having some like it doesn't have to be the entire story doesn't have to be an allegory for you to have allegories in your story.
0: Yeah, I think that's. I mean, I think he had a different distinction he was making there. I think he was trying to say you can't look at this book and say this is an allegory for World War Two. Right. For one, he was heavily influenced by wh- what happened to him in World War One. Um, and then also he mentions in, in that same section, he says, uh, you know, the hobbits would have been enslaved by both sides. All these things would have gone down differently, like if he had tried to write it as a true allegory for the war, which, he, you know, he doesn't view it as that. So, but, you know, there's this whole thing about the called the death of the author, where, um, you know, it's funny because this author actually is dead. The point being that once you write a book, it's kind of not yours anymore. And that, if someone wants to take it and say, "Oh, this is an allegory for World War II," and like outline the reasons why, like they're they're it's fair for them to do that. And it's kind of it's kind of weird for an author to step in and say, "No, this is what I intended." So there's kind of a, a fine line between authorial intention and you know the life that a book can take on as it stands on its own right some people would argue that authors don't even understand what they wrote sometimes. You know what I mean?
1: I think that it's more like, I just see it. I see, I see some of the things that he's writing and some of like the nature versus industrial, like it's just like, it seems to me like a lot of things were allegories and, and kind of things that he, he was like warning his readers about through his writing yeah. while also not being straight World War II allegory. Cause I, I think that is, I think that is, I think you're right when you say that, like you can't just look at the book and say it's a World War II allegory. Yeah. That makes sense to me, but it just like like it just seemed to me like he was saying like none of this has anything to do with anything that happened in my life.
0: Yeah, I mean, he he admits that he he's influenced by his experiences and in, in ways that are complex, and you know, what I mean, that quote. Yeah. Um, so so I think he at least acknowledges that. Um, so let's move on to talk more about his life. And, you know, our listener can be the judge. Mm-hmm. He, um, His parents both died when he was young, um, his father when he was three, and then his mother when he was 12. He went and was raised by a family friend who was a, was a priest and very, very Catholic, raised him to be very Catholic. He visited, uh, oh, this was an interesting little note. As a child, he ex- enjoyed exploring the English countryside, where he took a lot of inspiration for how he described, you know, the Shire. And he had an aunt Jane who had a farm that she called Bag End. <laughs> and he literally put that into his novel. It's pretty crazy. In his early teens, he started being really interested in language. And him and his cousins like started inventing languages. And and he actually wrote a book written entirely in an invented language. And it actually came up with his own alphabet as early as 1909. So he was really into this stuff. And I think that you know what I mean? Like that linguistic background is very heavily inf- influenced the lord of the rings in general with the elvish and all this stuff right
1: hit the the languages that he has and the fact that he was one of these people to write full languages and stuff is it's insane because it's like to to make your own language implement it and then make it have it actually make sense is so much more complex than it sounds you know what i mean you- yeah
0: and that was that was the thing that he was obsessed with you know what i mean and and he brings that to his to his writing and you know i think authors would be wise to you like to lean on their their own things that they are interested in and uh, maybe even obsessed with and to lean in those into those like knowledge you know the knowledge they've accumulated for that subject matter and like put it into their works because that's how we got elvish you know what i mean like because tolkien put that interest into his works yeah you can get into trouble when you try and imitate that and you don't actually know anything about it so that's always the, you know that's always the risk authors run um because we have to pretend like we, we know everything um when uh, when usually we we just know a little bit about a lot of stuff
1: now do you know i i know that like dothraki has been become a language for the show yeah. did george r martin fully create a language or is that
0: no? no as far as i know he did not um from yeah from what i understand they brought someone on to do that for the show to make it into an actual language so moving on he went on a a summer holiday to Switzerland and he like would vividly recall this, this journey in later in life. And especially in letters he would write to his son and all this stuff. And it seems that that hike or summer journey or whatever it was where he went and saw these mountains and all this stuff like that heavily influenced his, his book as well. Like the journey taking um, was very inspired by this, this Switzerland holiday he took. So then we get to the war. So, he he was kind of like uh you know an academic uh he's n- um not not very physically strong but you know kind of uh, like imaginative type and uh he went to college and uh so he deferred for a little bit but then it started he started to face immense pressure for not going into the war because at that time if you didn't volunteer like you were seen as a coward um so eventually he does join up and he fought in the Battle of the Somme, which I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. I've always seen it written, but never said it aloud. S o m m e, famous battle from World War One. He came down with trench fever. He had lice. Oh, that was carried by lice that he was often uh, afflicted with. Um, he 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 says later that like his illnesses that kept him out of the off the front like might have saved his life. Because a lot of his friends that he had been growing up with and people he knew died in a lot of these battles um, when, he was, when he was pretty young. So this, this is all very influential, too. And I think when he talks about the World War II allegory, he's also saying, like, no, also remember World War I. Because I think that that was a, had a very profound influence on his life mm-hmm. and his writing. So while he was in the army, he said that the experience in the, in, the, in the battle taught him a deep sympathy and feeling for what he called the Tommy, which is an especially plain soldier from agricultural counties. Um, he remained pro- profoundly grateful for the lesson. For a long time he had been imprisoned in a tower, not of pearl but of ivory. So this was his like I think it's like the, you know that thing of like the poor and the the you know uneducated are often the ones who die in these wars, right? Mm-hmm. And he he got, he saw that you know at first hand and so he felt like a deep connection to these to these you know boys who are dying they're just like farm boys and they're just out there dying you know
1: i mean not to mention the fact that he probably hadn't had a lot of interaction with these kind of people because he said he was raised in a certain environment so he probably got to know them as its people instead of just their status
0: yeah he started working when he got back from from the war he he started working in different colleges um during his time in college he wrote the hobbit and the first two volumes of the lord of the rings um while living at the certain actual residence in north oxford Or now, you know, now there's like a commemorative plaque there. So, yeah, he did a lot of his work while he was while he was in academia. And it's interesting that he wrote all these books for, you know, but then they weren't published till 1954. At least the Lord of the Rings weren't. So he worked on this trilogy a long time. is what I'm kind of reading in between the lines here.
1: So, I mean, The Hobbit came out in like 30s, right? Late 30s.
0: Yeah. So uh, 1937. So, yeah,
1: it's interesting that after The Hobbit came out, he it took what, 20 years
0: yeah, a well, little less 20-ish. than 20 years. Yeah. It would be it'd be 17 years, yeah, 17
1: years until proper fellowship. fellowship, Two Towers and Return of the King came out. It's so much time yeah. and so much happened during that time. So
0: Yeah, I mean all of World War 2. <laughs> right. So that's probably um,
1: like a reason that, that's all, you know what I mean, there's other things going on that would distract so much from writing
0: and yeah. So uh we should also say that here uh, he was known as being a political moderate. He was against a lot of industrialization. He seldom drove a car, often rode a bike, favored simple life. He, You know, I mean, his writing is very pastoral. And I think you can see that that all comes through in his writing. He was against both communism and Nazism, outspoken really against against both. I think that all comes through in his book.
1: You can tell just by, like, you can see that he, he is a, a man who seeks a certain amount of adventure or s- sought a certain amount of adventure. But at the yeah. same time, the thing that he yearned for and the thing that he... One of the the audience here in is the Shire and that simple,
0: simple life, yeah.
1: That, that, yeah but he
0: also but he also makes fun of them too. You know what I mean? Like he at the same as this, at the same time that he's like championing this lifestyle, a lot of these hobbits are seen as comical, right? And they're mm-hmm. and they're they're so shut in, and they're so and and the story itself is about Frodo leaving and going and like experiencing the world and meeting people. So the whole story is about breaking out of that comfort. Mm-hmm. so you can look at it both ways you yeah. know i see what you're saying for sure and, yeah. and so that's why i say it's interesting because i think you could you can view it either way right
1: right and so like the and the characters that are surrogates for the audience are, t- are typically the hobbits i mean it is frodo's the main character so right and they they just want to get back to the you know they just want to get back to the shire so it's like yeah it's well like,
0: they're also they're also kind of the fish out of water type character because they don't know they don't know a lot about the world mm-hmm. and they go out and they have to learn about it um, for the most part. So th- you know that that also makes them a good stand-in for the reader. He, he originally intended Lord of the Rings to be children's books, um uh, much in the same as The Hobbit, just kind of like a follow-up to The Hobbit. Um but as he wrote them, he knew noticed they were much darker and uh had more adult, you know, kind of concepts and themes in there. So he ended up writing them for adults and he had to I think that was part of the revision was changing it to be more for adults. And uh yeah, you, I think you can still see some of the traces of that though. Because especially in this first book, there are parts where it felt very Hobbit, right? It felt very whimsical, mm-hmm. and and I, I don't know. I'll be interested to see if that really stays true throughout. But it um, it does feel like at times almost written for a child, but then at other times more adult.
1: I, I yeah, I agree with you. I wonder. I, I, it'll be interesting to see when we get to like Return of the King if there's any of that any of that like simple joyfulness left in the book or if it's all just sapped out by the seriousness of what's going on. And maybe he intended that. Maybe he wanted it to seem like it was going to be another story like The Hobbit.
0: When his books came out, um, they were, I think they were, they did okay, but it wasn't until the 60s to where they really took off and became these supremely popular books that, you know, continued on through the 70s and and even to today, you know, they're still widely, widely read. One of some of the best selling books of all time.
1: Yeah, I think we should talk about the fact that it became such it became so popular in the sixties because of counter the counterculture that was coming up, right? It was a lot of yeah, like maybe. people living like alternative lifestyles and, and things that mm-hmm. are going on um, with like sex sexual freedom and like experimenting with drugs and like all of these things and, and Tolkien from all accounts is like it was not a fan of the fact that that his work was becoming like intertwined with this culture.
0: Yeah, it's interesting because he wasn't known as like a conservationalist. If you read his books in a certain way, they can be seen as that, right? Like trying to preserve the natural world and and and, and all this. So yeah, I can see it being championed by people who were, you know, at the time, you know, a lot of the hippie culture being very into like saving the planet and everything. I
1: honestly see the story a little bit in that way. Like I kind of I kind of understand why people were reading it that way because because if I didn't know about any better, I would have thought that he fit along in with that audience. And That like I would have thought that that was that was the point of the book was kind of just showing like. The horrors of war and the ideas that like we should we should try to conserve nature and and like worry less about this industrial complex and
0: yeah and i mean that goes back to what we were talking about right with the death of the author and you know that concept and the idea that like that the book can mean that because it's it once it's out and published it's kind of its own thing and whether or not he intended it for it to be that way you know the, the, if the crowd picks it up and, and uses it that way, it kind of becomes that. I, you know, there's always an interplay, I think, of the two, authorial intent and and the book as it, se- as it stands. But yeah, it, it, that's that's very fascinating stuff. But I think we should probably get into the actual text. Let's do it, yeah. So my book had this foreword that was separated into several sections. Um, we already talked a little bit about him talking, you know, him talking about it being allegory. But then there was one called... Um, it gets into this other part, it's called One Concerning Hobbits, and we get like a really long description of what hobbits are, you know, the fact that they love wine and cheer and well-tilled earth, it talks about their stature, and kind of gives them like a description. And it's interesting because this is very info-dumpy, and um, I think today would be frowned upon, um, but it's like him kind of like quickly going over some of the details from his previous book, right, for people who who haven't read it.
1: I think, yeah, I thought it was pretty, pretty unique, like, because, it, like you said, like, no, you, it's not, it's not really the norm, like, you don't really see that. It's cool, because, like, I could, I could see myself just, if there's more written, I could see myself just getting caught up in these details. And a lot of people do. Yeah, exactly, yeah. So, I was going to say, like, the, like, I know the Simmer, I've never read the Simmerillion, but mm-hmm. I know that it's, like, a lot of people have said it's very info-dumpy, like, it's very much just, like, a text, a historical text. Yeah, it's like it's a history
0: th- book, almost, yeah. mm
1: mm-hmm. um, but yeah, I thought it was really cool. Hobbits are very into their families and, and where they come from. And I, I you wouldn't think that it's something you'd be captivated by. But I was so interested in it. And I love I love this like Hobbit culture that he created.
0: Right. Yeah. So the next one is uh, concerning pipe weed, which I thought was pretty funny. <laughs> um, it seems to be tobacco from, from if I can read between the lines. But I do think there is a funny uh, alternative reading where it maybe is a different kind of weed. Um, that was probably championed by the people in the 70s <laughs> right and but today. it's very specifically not <laughs> just tobacco you know what i mean right it's something else right it's like a mystery weed right, right. so if
1: it was if it was just tobacco he would say it's tobacco but it's not right. it's some sort of interesting weed that that the the hobbits smoke and they're very fond of and very they get really into like different
0: strains from different areas so you tell me what you think that is (laughs) and not just the hobbits uh gandalf is known for being quite fond of it and and being very good at blowing his own smoke rings (laughs) you
1: uh you posted
0: on our on our twitter i think
1: uh a gift that i'd seen before it's so funny it's (laughs) like something about uh gandalf getting
0: showing showing up to get dank or something like that. showing up to get
1: dank and he just like appears out of nowhere just when the smoke clouds come rolling
0: yeah it's it's good it's good check that out uh, at Ink to Film. <laughs> yeah, the two other sections in here are of the ordering of the Shire that talks a lot about how there's increased patrols of these kind of guardsmen as like strange fellows and dark figures are being spotted at the borders. And there's some outlines about like what happened in The Hobbit. Just kind of the, uh, the idea that also Bilbo has this false story that he tells people about how he got the ring where he says that it was a present. Um, and that's interesting, I think. To think about and the fact that Gandalf knows that it's not true and he finds it odd that like Bilbo keeps telling this story So yeah, he's setting up a lot of this like, you know What's been going on in the the intervening times between the Hobbit and and the Lord of the Rings All right So before we get into the first five chapters of this novel We wanted to stop and take a second to tell you about audible
1: audible is an app that you can use to listen to audiobooks They have like 80,000 or something like that in their collection And I mean i've used this app quite a bit They've been nice enough to give us an affiliate link. It's audibletrial.com forward slash ink to film. And with that, you get 30 free days to their to their service and one free audiobook in their whole collection.
0: Yeah, you could use that to listen to this book, which is a very good audiobook. Uh, I like the reader a lot. Um, I, I, I actually sometimes will listen along as I read. I don't know why. I just find that to be nice. Like there's kind of a pleasantness to that because um, I do happen to own this audiobook as well. Yeah, I I've done that
1: from time to time as well. For this so far I've done I've alternated. I've read some and and listened to some as well. Uh right. this is actually the first audiobook that I ever got when I was younger. My parents got it for me and it was like 20 something it was like, you know, like 15 to 20 CDs that you would like pop in and pop out. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, I mean it was a great experience. I remember, I remember just like that was my first experience with audiobooks So it's funny that we're coming full circle now.
0: Yeah, well, and Audible is a much better way to do it because it's you know if you if you think about that it was way more expensive to get through a book whereas this is fifteen bucks you get a book and uh, you get a new book every month if you if you keep up with the subscription. We should say you can also can cancel anytime. So yeah, if you wanted to get that, uh, this book or any other book, um, you can use our affiliate link, which is audibletrial.com forward slash ink to film and get it for free. All right. Book one, chapter one, a long expected party. Bilbo Baggins has announced his 111st birthday party, which is 60 years after his adventure to the lonely mountain where he amassed his immense wealth. Uh, it's noted that he has an unnaturally youthful appearance as he's, as if he's been preserved. Uh, his young cousin, uh, Frodo has come to live with him in his tweens, which I got a kick out of, um, which is the age referred to, uh, for hobbits, uh, between their twenties and the age of 33, where they kind of become adults. Um, they both share the same birthday, September 22nd, which is also interesting that, um, lots of people have noted that it's interesting that it's like a real day. You know what I mean? September 22nd. Like, that's a real day in our calendar. Right. So that's interesting to note, too, right? Maybe it has some
1: significance to him. Tolkien.
0: Yeah, I don't know. Uh, we we first meet uh, or first hear about Sam and his father, Ham Ganji, uh also known as the Gaffer, uh, and that they're friends with Bilbo, and uh, they tend the garden at Bag End, which is the name of his, you know, immense hobbit hole. Uh, they They live in the same hill, actually, just like further down the way. Um, this is, uh, this is all very written in kind of an omniscient POV, so it's a lot of just, like, town history, what's going on, what everybody's up to. Um, we learned that a lot of people are gossiping about Frodo, and him being from, like, down the road in Buckland, and how the people in Buckland are all queer, (laughs) You know, which is their word for weird. (laughs) Um, But it's just funny, right? Because this is them setting up where like both sides feel that way about each other. Just like even though they live in the same damn place, it's just like if you're on that side of the river, you're weird. I feel like this is what I was saying earlier. He kind of pokes fun at this like simple mindedness too, right? Yeah, and it's very like
1: I think an English person would say it's very English. Like I feel like he's pulling that from like there's a certain amount of like snootiness that can be seen and like, oh, they're from this far. Like he's I think he's making a comment on like what it's like to be like you guys are from the exact same spot and you have no idea how dangerous it is outside there. They're just like each other. Like, you know what I mean? They're they're worried about things that don't really matter.
0: Yeah. So we learned that Frodo's parents drowned and he is an orphan who Bilbo took in to raise as his own kind of son. I guess I don't know if he ever, he never really calls them that—but it seems like they have a very kind of father-son relationship. There's a lot of gossip about the you know the hobbits who know that there's treasure inside Bag End, and people are always kind of like debating you know if there's like hidden passages filled with gold and all this stuff. When the party is announced, everyone gets excited because the uh, the custom for hobbits is to give out presents to your to the people who come to your birthday party. It's pretty cool custom. Um, so everyone gets excited because uh, Bilbo is going to invite like, a billion people to this party. It's going to be this gigantic, like, biggest party ever, and he's going to be giving out presents to everybody from his, like, immense horde of wealth. Uh, rumors abound of fireworks at the party that are going to be set off by the wizard Gandalf. Um, there's there's a note of um, some dwarves showing up, um, other strangers who come by. So it seems like uh, he invites some of his non-Hobbit friends to this, although we don't really get their names other than Gandalf. So, we don't know who these mysterious dwarves are. Well, we can it's never really, well, at least so far, it hasn't been told us. We can
1: probably assume that they had, you know, they were either relations or they're, you know, people that he met on his journey before. Cause the only, yeah,
0: it would have been interesting if like one of them was, you know what I mean? Like somebody from The Hobbit. Mm-hmm. But instead, it's like we don't get their names.
1: Speaking of names, so. um, you were talking about before how some of this can be seen as a little more childish, this part of the, the book. And just the the amount of names and the 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 differences in the names and like yeah Tolkien They're writes funny. names man he can make some names and I think that goes back to his like <laughs> linguistics background
0: yeah yeah and a lot of them sound very similar like it's like Boffin and Biffin and Bomber. same thing and... with like d- dwarves and and the Hobbit right right and the proud foot and proud feet and all that stuff
1: so how I mean I can't even imagine how much time he spent just creating names
0: <laughs> yeah well. Maybe like that. Yeah, I, I, one might argue there are too many names in this beginning. Um, you don't know what's important and what's not. Yeah, um, and it can be overwhelming. Um, but if you look at it more as like a textured thing, then I think it works that way. So he sends out hundreds of invitations, and the 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 day of the party arrives, and there's all these wagons show up, and all these people start arriving, and he starts giving all these presents, and, and among them he has dwarf toys that are made from Dale for the children. Um, the day is full of eating and drinking and games fireworks by gandalf there are all sorts like they're described in the most like magnificent magical ways they have scents and all this stuff um and in the end a dragon flies overhead three times which scares the piss out of all the hobbits um but it's this like joke played by gandalf Mm -hmm. which is kind of an interesting difference from the movie which i should also say we haven't talked about this much but Occasionally, we're going to make some movie comparisons, but I think we're going to try not to do it too much um, and focus more on the book. But here, I just immediately thought, like, oh, in the movie, it was set off by, on accident by I think Merry and Pippin, right? Whereas here, it's 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 like a deliberate prank by Gandalf.
1: Yeah, it, there's a there's a very distinct because I because the movies are the thing that I think of more often than the books. Um, yeah, there's very distinct differences in some of the characters. Um, sure Frodo's like Gandalf, aged down yeah. a lot of the most of the hobbits are aged down in the movie
0: oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. they are well I think what they are is the age they are they are during this party because a lot of this beginning happens a lot faster in the movie yeah um, whereas in the book it's we'll get into it it's drawn out over a long period of time there's this huge prodigious feast um, that ends you know with a big speech given by Bilbo his the speech is you know almost word for word what's in the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, um, it's, it's good, you know, and he, he kind of teases the crowd. He does the, the famous, uh, I don't know half of you half as well as I should like, and I like less than half of you half as well as you deserve. Which I think it might be fun to kind of parse that. Um, if you take it, when I first heard it, I thought it was an insult. I think it is an insult you, still. See, I don't think so. Yeah. If you parse it. Okay, let's figure it so out. So what he's saying is, he says, I don't know half of you as well as I should like. So that on its, on its surface seems like he's saying, a I sh- should like to know half of you more, right. right? So that's a good thing. And then he says, and I like less than half of you, half as well as you deserve. So he's saying he, like, he, he, he likes them less than they deserve, which means he should like them more, right? Because they deserve to be liked more. So that's an interesting statement in and of itself. Like, it's not necessarily an insult, right? Right. Like, he's saying that there are people in the crowd, less than half of you, who deserve to be liked by him more than he currently likes But what them. about
1: the other half is where the insult comes?
0: Yes, I guess.
1: Because the other half yeah. basically saying, fuck the other half.
0: Well, or he's yeah, maybe he likes them sufficiently enough. Right. But he's maybe it's a backhanded compliment, I guess, to them. But if you think if you if you think of just the people he's trying to point out that like there are those among you who I wish I liked more because you deserve to be liked more. Right. That's a compliment. It's kind of, Almost kind of a positive thing to say. Right. Yeah. I like that it's all twisty though, and it's it's like you know you have to kind of think about it, which I think they even say like people were sitting there trying to figure out whether or not it was a compliment. Yeah. Um, which is funny. Like that kind of like little linguistic plays is is so funny
1: it's so like it's so tolkien it's so lord of the rings it that line i remember so vividly it's like one of those as we go along in this book because i've noticed already how how much of the book is like directly quoted in the movie i just yeah. like peter jackson is such a fan of this universe and he was just like i'm going to the, the you can't change these lines you can't leave them out like they're so inherently
0: the like the hobbit and lord of the rings and and, and honestly the i mean those movies are pretty faithful um, especially the first one, I think, is a pretty faithful adaptation of, of, of this book. Yeah, I mean, there's not many changes. Um, well, there's some things that are left out and some things that are kind of like sped up, mm-hmm. but the, a lot of what you see on screen is something from the novel. Right. Bilbo puts on his ring, disappears, and, and and you know, leaves the party. And this, he's going to have this grand, like, mysterious exit. Um, but when he gets home, like, Gandalf knows, and he's there waiting for him, basically. And they talk about it. And um, I thought there was a funny line that I just wanted to point out. Gandalf like, throws some shade at, 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 at um, Bilbo here because Bilbo's talking about his book he's written. And Gandalf says, uh, or no, sorry. For, uh, Bilbo says, I thought of an ending for my book and he lived happy, happily ever after to the end of his days. And then Gandalf says, I hope he will, but nobody will read the book however it ends. Yeah, Which I thought was pretty cold-blooded. <laughs>
1: I mean, isn't he, <laughs> he's like, he's isn't like... he saying that like, <laughs> no, like you're not going to... like. Because he's he's going to write it in Rivendell and like nobody in the Shire will read it, kind of.
0: I also had a point here I wanted to point out that, so for this book, I was struggling not to think of the characters from the movies. You know what I mean? Just like immediately th- picture Gandalf in the movie yeah. and that was well, it. Well, Ian McKellen is
1: um, Gandalf. Like
0: I can't separate the yeah. two anymore. Well, I, I the thing that was helping me do it was I kept thinking of the animated movies. And and trying to picture them as the characters, because I actually don't remember those movies as much because I haven't seen them, you know, as recently as I've seen the the new ones. Mm -hmm. Now, I started imagining this kind of like animated Gandalf, which was drawn very um, faithfully with like the blue hat and everything like in the silver scarf and, and the stuff that you don't really get in the movie. And I tried to think of him more as that Gandalf, this like animated version, and that helped me at least get a little distance where I wasn't always just thinking of Ian McKellen, mm-hmm. um, which like I don't know, that's not necessarily a bad thing. But I was trying to separate it out to to to, to make it feel like the book was something different than the movie. Yeah, I
1: think sense. I think Gandalf is a little more sassy in the book so far, and that's oh, yeah. also helping me separate them because I'm like, oh, Gandalf, he just has like a slightly different personality. Than he than yes. he did in the movie. I actually haven't. I wanted to tell you. I actually haven't seen. I've seen the Hobbit animated film, but I haven't seen Lord of the Rings: Two Towers or Return of the King. I haven't seen any of that. Yeah, animated. it might be
0: fun to, to revisit that. We could consider maybe at some point doing an episode where we just watch like the Fellowship of the Ring, the animated film, and talk about it. Yeah. Um. So yeah. So Gandalf. Uh. There's kind of a, this the interesting restrain, uh, exchange, um, where he's trying to talk to him about the ring. And Gandalf says that he thinks he should leave it behind, and, and Bilbo's like, oh yeah, I mean, I'm gonna leave it behind. But then it's still in his pocket, and then he gets all angry with him, and he and uh, Gandalf turns into his like intimidating, you know, wizard mode, and uh, scares Bilbo, who uh, finally agrees to leave it behind. Did
1: you do you know if uh, in the I can't remember right now. Do you know if the line the Do not take me for some conjurer of cheap tricks was that is that a Tolkien line or is that from the movies?
0: You know, I think that uh, I don't know for sure. I feel like that wasn't exactly what he says in the book. Mm-hmm. I, a lot of that exchange is exactly in the book, but I don't think that particular line was. I could be misremembering. I do know he says, like, I'm not trying to rob you. I'm trying to help you. That uh, that I think is in there. Yeah. So some of that li- some of those lines are, are definitely I, I don't remember.
1: Exactly yeah. For whatever reason, that one. line just sticks out so much to me. I like it makes me think yeah. of that moment. Yeah.
0: So uh, w- uh, we also learned that Bilbo is going to leave, leave back End to Frodo. Um, and Frodo Frodo is actually kind of in, in on the know on this. Like he knows about this, that Bilbo was going to do this trick and that he was going to leave and all this stuff. So Bilbo is not really surprised by it all. I'm uh, sorry, Frodo isn't. Um, so yeah, Bilbo leaves. Uh, you know, Gandalf says, until until I see you again kind of thing. And then Frodo shows up. There's, um, G- Gandalf has like placed the ring on the mantelpiece in this like, in this like envelope and Frodo comes and and he, Gandalf tells him like, you know, look on the mantelpiece there's something left for you, which I thought was also an interesting difference. I know we said we weren't going to do a lot of this, but <laughs> in the movie, Gandalf leaves the ring on the ground, unwilling to even touch it. And, and, and Frodo comes in and finds it kind of, of of his own volition. And then Gandalf is like sitting there with his back to him. And he's like, Oh, he's found it now. It's come to him kind of thing. Whereas, Here it's more directed. It's like Gandalf actually picks up the thing and puts it on the mantelpiece and then when when Frodo comes in, tells him there's a packet for you on the mantelpiece. Yeah. Deliberately giving it to him. And so it's interesting because I think it makes Gandalf a little bit more manipulative than he seems in the movies. Yeah. Right?
1: I think it adds more drama to have have it that way in the movie as well because it's like, it's so much more cinematic to have it be like something that he like can't touch. Like he refuses. Because like in this, he like refuses to touch it, but like kind of touches it momentarily. But in the movie, yeah. he's like, I will not touch it. It calls to me, like, all yeah. that stuff.
0: Yeah, I think it makes more sense to do it that way in the movie. I, I, in the defense of the book, I think the the thing you could say here is that Gandalf does not yet know what it is, right? And maybe he, like, he suspects, but he doesn't, he doesn't suspect as strongly as I think he does in the movie. Because it takes him a long time in the book. It takes him, like, 20 years <laughs> before he's, like, sure of what it, it is. It blows
1: my mind that he didn't, yeah. he left it with Frodo for, like, 17 years or something. Like, he couldn't have just, like... I don't know, man. It seems like he would know just from it makes him invisible and it calls to him in an evil way. How many of those rings can there
0: be? <laughs> well, we know there are other rings of power, yeah. um, but this he doesn't know if this is the one yet. Um, we'll get into that. So so Frodo owns Bag end and he, he has to like arbitrate the will left by Bilbo and he's giving out stuff to random hobbits. People keep showing up to take things. Um, Gandalf leaves for a while, but then shows back up um tells him that he's going to have to continue to leave. This is something that he does a lot. Like leaving and coming back, leaving and coming back. And he says, "I'm going to I'm going to leave, but expect me at the most unexpected times," which I think is a funny thing to say. Oh well, yeah, it's um, very that's him in
1: the in the Hobbit, that's him in this, and it's like foreshadowing anything that happens. It's always Gandalf's just
0: like, "Here I am." <laughs> yeah. Um so he, he it seems that he's like doing research, but we don't we have to read between the lines of like what he's actually doing. Um, anyway, he leaves and that's the end of chapter one. So talk to me about chapter one. What, what what was your reaction to it? I mean, the, the major thing that sticks out to me that
1: I was like, I couldn't stop thinking about is just like s- how densely detailed this world is that he creates. Yeah. And like, it's detailed in the Hobbit and like, he takes it to another level. There's so much, he's just starts talking about history. He starts talking about like the history of the Family Shire, histories. how the Shire was set up. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And like, it's so, and like, I, I'm a person who really enjoys that and because it helps me like imagine more and like every little detail that I get is like another thing that I can add into like my mind's eye of what's going on. And that's the thing that sticks out to me the most is just like how real the Shire feels and how it seems like such a happy place to be. And I think it's smart to do that because it, it sticks out so much to you when you juxtapose it with what's coming.
0: Yeah, it's interesting and kind of like a meta writing level for me to think about how beloved this book is and how these chapters, people still read them and enjoy them today. But it's a mistake for a, um, in my opinion, for a modern writer to read these chapters and go, ooh, this is how it's done. Because our tastes have changed. And this this book kind of is grandfathered in, in a way, because it's a classic. But... Nowadays, people don't want to read about town history for 40 pages at the beginning of a book before anything really happens. And Tolkien, I think, carries it but with his like, immense skill with language and his ability to, to like, just write beautiful phrases and to, and to have quirky, interesting things happening and create this world, right? But that's extremely hard to do. And you could argue even that if you can do that, you're better served by getting the story started. And that's something that throughout this introduction, I kept thinking like, wow, he's really getting away with not starting this thing (laughs) for a long time. And it just, you you would, I would say, you know, you read this book and appreciate it for what it is. But if you're a modern writer, like you are best served by not following this blueprint.
1: Yeah, it's something that sticks out to me just from a filmmaker's perspective is, you're taught when you're looking at like a screenplay or even when you're sitting in the edit to like f- to cut down your movie is like does what is what's happening on screen affecting and moving forward the plot and like yeah. so and like I think that's the difference between films and book is because book you can just you can just if it's up to the writer ultimately Um and you can just put as much uh, detail uh as you want in there and get as granular as you want or as broad as you want. Whereas in a film, you're like, let's move it along. Got to keep it going. Got to keep it going. You want people to be engaged and, and all of that. I don't know, man. There's something about the way that he does it. I, I totally agree that he has this mastery over language. And I think it is because of his yep. background.
0: Yeah. I mean, I have a real fond kind of place for pastoral poetry, really beautiful stuff. I am um, saying like Yeats, um, Robert Frost is, like, my go-to for that kind of writing. And, and a lot of this stuff reminds me of, like, a Frost poem. And and that kind of stuff, like, it's it speaks to, like, a simple truth of the universe, and it, it really touches on, like, the beauty of nature. And he kind of does it in that way, I guess, at times. And a lot of that stuff, like, that'll carry me no matter what's being talked about. <laughs> like, I can just enjoy that stuff. Um, but let's let's move on. So chapter two, The Shadow of the Past. Uh, Frodo Frodo carries on giving birthday parties for Bilbo year after year um, which at first I was like wait year after year and yeah this goes on for like 17 years afterwards we learn that he's best friends with Marion Pippin um, and he, he he's approaching the age of 50 which he, he thinks of as this like really important age because it's the same age that Bilbo originally left uh, in the Hobbit and he keeps thinking like something monumental is going to happen and uh we we learn that there are elves and dwarves on the borders of like the shire who are speaking about um something called the enemy in the land of mordor and rumors of orcs and trolls and creatures far worse without a name so this is the first we start hearing of this like danger that's really outside of it um another interesting difference from the from the from the movie because the movie begins with this like prolonged kind of backstory where it shows the history of the ring and all that stuff right mm-hmm. Um, And it shows kind of an exciting kind of war and it shows Sauron and, you know, he's got the big ring and all that stuff. So like the movie, the book does not start that way. The book starts in Hobbiton, you know what I mean? And like we just get touches of this kind of outside world. That's the hook in the movie, too. It's like that's
1: I remember watching that scene for the first time as a kid and being like, oh, wow, this is crazy. And then you're hooked.
0: Yeah, Yeah, it's different here, right? We we hear talk of tree men who uh, someone witnessed walking. Um, which I thought was is cool, kind of allusion to you know things that happen later. Um, so yeah, Gandalf has been popping in and out over the years, but he finally arrives later to tell him what he's learned about the Rings of Power. He talks about the lesser Rings and then the great Rings. He talks about how the One Ring will possess the owner over time, will make them eventually fade from reality, I guess. Um, and he he's long suspected this ring and he's been looking into it over the years and he warns of the peril and that the Shire may come to be enslaved. Um, he throws the ring in the fire, which, you know, that happens in the movie, uh, reads the words, uh, that speaks the famous verse, uh, speaks of the Sauron, the dark Lord and how, who has left Mirkwood now to take up residence in Mordor has rebuilt the great tower. And, you know, is amassing works there. We know, um, and then, yeah, we also, gives, uh, we also get the wonderful quote, quote where uh, Frodo wishes that this hadn't happened in his time. And, and Gandalf says, you know, all, all people feel that way. And it's, I, I don't know, there's so many great quotes here that I could just read verbatim, but I feel like that'd become the whole podcast. So I'm, I'm going to have to, you kind of skip over some of them. But, it's
1: basically yeah. every verse you would want to read for motivation or like yeah. happiness or like insightfulness. It's just like he's, or just kind of like everything. the beauty of how
0: it's written, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, we, uh, Sauron the Dark Warden wants to cover all the lands in a second darkness, tells the story of the ring and how it was cut from the hand by Isildur and then was lost in a river, Uh, tells of Smeagol who found it and murdered his friend Deagle, takes the ring as his own as a birthday present, and he's shunned by his community for being devious, called Gollum for the mutterings that he makes under his breath, and eventually goes into the caves to hide from the sun with the ring, and he grows to hate and love the ring as he hates and loves himself. Uh, Bilbo is the only one to ever leave the ring behind in the history. Like he he was the only person who's ever been able to like voluntarily leave the ring behind, which Gandalf thinks is uh, surprising. And he talks about how hobbits have this like natural um, surprising strength to them. Yeah. And, and kind of like fortitude of will. And I feel like
1: we're also supposed to think that like, Bilbo didn't forcibly get the ring, right? I think that's an important thing. Like he, he could have taken the ring, and then when he was invisible, killed Gollum. And I think we're right. supposed he to... he didn't kill
0: Gollum though. Mercy stayed his hand. Right. He he thing.
1: didn't yeah. kill Gollum. So so in the fact that he he got it like with a pure heart or something like that is is kind of leads us into like why hobbits and why like why why Frodo it, like w- as the story goes on we come to like Frodo's like why me why am I the ring bearer. Right. And I think it it shows like
0: why he's good at why, why hobbits and particular and maybe, you know, Bagginses mm-hmm. are good at this sort of thing. Um, we, So we also learned that that Gandalf like had to force a lot of this information out of Gollum, which is also interesting, right? Like, like he doesn't say torture, but you get an impression that he wasn't necessarily very kind to him when he was getting this information out of him.
1: Yeah. And we also know that like somebody, I think, I don't know if he uses the name Aragorn, but like. A ranger or a Strider. yeah, he does. Okay. He
0: mentions he mentions Aragorn, the greatest huntsman, who helps him, who helped him hunt down and find Gollum. So he found Gollum. They tortured him, and then got the information out of him. Basically, <laughs> sounds like it. Yeah, That's, I mean, he's Gandalf the Gray here, right? He's got some. He's uh, he's a little bit more gray in his uh, his uh, morality at this point. Yeah. <laughs> um, so he also finds out that Gollum has revealed the name of the Shire hobbits and Baggins to the enemy and so that he knows that sauron knows that uh you know someone named baggins has the one ring and he wants it all of his mind is bent on it or whatever right like it's the one thing he wants Mm -hmm. and uh gandalf says the ring must be taken to mount doom to be destroyed that's the only way and frodo this is when frodo offers him the ring but he says he cannot take it um, because through him it would it would wield this great power um, but then Frodo surprises Gandalf by saying, I-, I will take it and I will leave the Shire to, to, to protect the Shire because he wants to protect it. And, and he doesn't say like, I'm going to take it to-, to Mount Doom or anything yet, but he's just saying like, I'm, I'll leave the Shire with the ring to protect everybody I know. And then, uh, Sam, Samwise Gamgee gets, gets caught o- eavesdropping and, uh, Gandalf, Gandalf tells him you're going to accompany Frodo as your punishment. And that's the end of chapter two. So
1: Samwise, um. He's the man. I don't like. There's no if-ands or buts, man. Sam is like, he is like the full-on surrogate for the audience. And I was, I honestly didn't remember how he was like depicted and treated a little bit. There's a little bit of like, yeah, way more servant feeling. Like he obviously yeah. he called him Master Frodo, all that stuff. But it, it's in the book. I think it's played out more as like legitimately like a servant. And not just like somebody right. who's helping him along.
0: Well, later on, and later on, we get more of like his friendship, though, and like how he feels about him, and, yeah. and how, yeah. So, I mean, I think their friendship is really kind of the heart of this novel, mm-hmm. and and especially later on, it becomes so important. Um, and we see we see traces of it early, I think. All right, so chapter three is called Three Is Company," and this is uh, we we get Frodo. He's kind of knows he needs to leave soon. Weeks go by as he's, like, dragging his feet about finally leaving, and he wants to wait for his birthday to happen, <laughs> and, and, and and Gandalf has left again to go investigate some more stuff. He has a conversation before Gandalf leaves where he's trying to figure out, like, where he's going to go, and uh, Gandalf suggests that he could go to Rivendell, so he decides that that's what he's going to do. But I don't know. It, it also strikes me as very, like, lackadaisical on, like, Gandalf's part. Like, he's very... He's like, oh, you can kind of go wherever and, you know, maybe you'll go to Rivendell. And like, I'm thinking, if you know this is the one ring of power, you're not just going to let this hobbit wander off wherever he wants to go. Right. Like, you got to kind of like, no, you gotta know where he is. Right. And he needs to go to Rivendell because like, it's important. Well, the elves. I don't know. It's interesting how, yeah, how the how that kind of plays out. Mm hmm. Yeah, I, I hadn't even really noticed that. But yeah, you're right. It's
1: like, you're not just going to tell him like, yeah, just keep it secret, keep it safe, and then just tell him to run off into the woods. Yeah.
0: I don't know, man. And so, yeah. So, Gandalf leaves. Frodo sells Bagand, uh to the Sackville Bagginses, who are these like shitty people. And I think it's funny that they're, um he called them SBs a lot, which... I just think the son of a bitch, (laughs) (laughs) almost (laughs) SOBs, the SBs, you know, sons of bitches. (laughs) And then he so he's the story is that he's going to buy this other hole like hobbit hole in Buckland and he's going to go live at the edge of like the Shire. And so his whole premise is that he wants to fool everybody into thinking he's just moving to this other home instead of actually leaving the Shire. And this becomes a very important thing for, like, these chapters, right? Like, his kind of ruse, and he's, like, m- pulling one over on all of Hobbiton to make them think that he is actually just moving to the edge of town and not actually leaving. And even his friends, he hasn't, other than Sam, don't know that he's, don't we think, know that he's go- He's actually leaving. And so he uh, Pippin, on the day where he finally leaves, after his 50th birthday, um, they decide to go. Oh, uh, so I also wanted to say 50th birthday is like a really small gathering. It's just like him and a few friends and they they have a feast and they get drunk, which is a very common thing for this book. A lot of feasting and, and drinking of wine and beer, right? Well, yeah, it's Hobbits, right?
1: All the all of the meals and all of the drinks and all the weed, apparently. Pipe weed.
0: <laughs> yeah. As he's finally getting ready to leave, he's he overhears the gaffer down the hill telling somebody in like a really shrill vo- voice that Frodo has already left. And it just I don't know the the timing here is like almost too much to be believed, so he's been putting this off for like twenty years, putting it off week by week. His birthday comes and goes, finally he decides he's gonna leave, and this is the moment where a dark writer shows up at his place, basically like just down the hill, and he overhears them talking with um the gaffer and and you know what I mean like how close he is to being discovered here. Uh, it's it's kind of crazy to me.
1: Yeah, I mean, all of the timing, it, it, I think that's kind of why Peter Jackson tightened it up. is just because it's yeah. like there's 17 years from the time that Gandalf leaves to literally only find Gollum and fi- and torture him and then also find out about the Rings of Power. So that took 17 yeah. years, and in those 17 years, not one person who'd been looking for the ring. I, I guess Gollum, they had to torture Gollum for Gollum to be like resentful yeah. to go tell the enemy, but...
0: Well, it's like it's weeks after he tells them of the danger and the fact that they know his name and are coming for him. And then weeks go by before he decides he's going to leave anyway. Yeah. Like, it's cra- it's kind of crazy. Um. But anyway, I mean, it's it just like the pacing of this. This is clearly not written by somebody with, who has like cinematic pacing in mind. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, this is just like, oh, yeah, weeks go by. It's fine. <laughs> and then, yeah, they, they, they finally leave passing into the darkness like a rustle in the grasses, which I thought was just a really wonderful line. As he leaves Bag End. I found that there's like he was really really good at evoking the sort of melancholy feeling of like looking at a place where you used to live and seeing it all like packaged up and and put away and as you're leaving it behind to go to like some new new place or new um, chapter in your life and knowing maybe that it's going to be lived in by somebody else or whatever it is and there's this certain mix of like being being excited about your future And looking forward to maybe the new place but also like looking back and feeling kind of melancholy about the whole thing and that whole feeling comes across so strongly in this part and and i really wanted to like compliment him on that because as someone who moved from florida to oregon i remember feeling this exact feelings very strongly um the last night i spent in my old apartment in florida before i moved to oregon
1: yeah i mean it's it's something i feel like everybody experiences i remember i remember the, the day that i left home for college like it's 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 that yeah. idea that like how many times are you going to see this place that you you've seen every day for your whole life or how many you know, how many times are you going to see the things that you've seen before again and it's I, yeah. I don't know
0: well, well also like uh i don't know i'm thinking of also of like places that you can't go back to you know what I mean? Like leaving home is is like almost a different animal because it's like unless, you know, your ha- your your home is leaving with you, right? Like if you can come back to it at any point whereas like if you I, I know you moved out of the house in Gainesville, right? And then like the house in Gainesville got sold. So like thinking about that, right? Like that that like when you left that that place was going to be right. gone. Right. There's no more memories to be had there. Right. You know. And so like which yeah, there's a certain sadness to that. Even even though you like you may be happy about your next the next phase in your life, right? Right.
1: It just it that it, it in like a day span it becomes history, right? It becomes like something that you look right. back on fondly, but you can never relive. You can never be in those moments again.
0: Yeah, and it's weird to see it bare, to see it like stripped of all the things that made it personal to you, right? And 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 have all that. And it's just walls now, and it's just walls and carpet, and like it's like this weird mix of familiar yet different now because it's empty, right? Anyway, we've lingered on this a while, but I just thought it's like that that those moments in my life have stuck out to me as being really interesting and memorable. And and I loved that that was so evocative, this part here of him leaving Bag End. He walks around and he like he's like spends time inside of a room watching the sunlight slowly fade along the wall and all this stuff. And like, I don't know, it's just really evocative. I get very I, I you,
1: and like what's funny is like I do stuff like that. Like I think yeah. I, like I get like so in my own head that I feel like my life is a movie, and that like this moment where I sit and just they ponder and like it's I'm like, you know what I mean, like it's like, <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't know man, I get really sentimental about stuff
0: yeah, well, they're all we're all the heroes of our own stories, so it's kind of the way you know humans go through life, I think, so yeah they they go on this long walk now, and they're and they're they're doing a quiet walk along the countryside. Uh, we also have a weird moment, kind of a whimsical moment, where we switch h- suddenly into the fox's point of view, and it has, like, thoughts about h- hobbits and how it's weird that these hobbits are sweep- sleeping outside. <laughs> Did you notice this part? Yeah. Like, it's, it stands out so much to a modern reader to me. Like, all of a sudden, we hop into a, a fox's brain of all things, and it, ha- it has these, like, put-together thoughts about these hobbits. And that was what I was saying when I felt like this was a leftover of this, like, child- like children's book, right? Yeah.
1: Seems like a children's book know, for sure.
0: That somehow didn't get edited out. Um, but yeah, very whimsical. But we're still kind of in that. Like th- this this book really um, draws out this like, you know, I think about the movie and like the, the whole Hobbit, like Hobbiton stuff being very light and fun. But like it doesn't last that long before we're on the road and there's danger, yeah. right? Well, I mean... Whereas I, this book really draws that yeah,
1: out. Yeah, I can almost guarantee that we're not going to get the viewpoint of a fox when we're on our way to Mordor, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's just not going to... Right. So... But, yeah, it is cool that yeah, he was know. able to, to, to take those two elements and mash them together like this.
0: Yeah, we get the line where he's remembering Bilbo Baggins talking about being swept off by the road and never knowing where it'll take you. And then, yeah, he has this thought about how, like, all of roads are connected. And, like, when you walk out your door, like, y- 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 this road can take you all the way to Mordor. And that, that's actually a really interesting thought, too. I don't know. Is that something you, like, I, you uh, ruminated on at I all? I actually had
1: this in my notes where I wanted to talk about how the road continues to be something that's important just the idea of the road or the actual physical road and uh right how the hobbits here in a little bit they get onto the road and they realize they should stray from the road because they don't want to run into the attention of anybody who would be on the road so they want to take like the ways that are might be longer but but won't be physically on the road and, and like the idea that like that is their road like they're so what is the idea is our roads are basically just a construct at that point because it's just like he yeah. leaves he leaves home well, to head to Mordor, and technically there's a road that he takes.
0: That reminds me of the Frost poem, you know, uh, the the pathless travel. Yeah, two roads. You know? Yeah, yeah. So so yeah, two roads diverging yellow wood. Um. So yeah, like I said, like the you know this it reminds me of Frost a lot, but yeah, I, I think that that's that's absolutely happening here, and just the idea of like travel and and how connected things are in ways that we maybe don't realize how like this thing can lead to that. And we're all connected in ways, you know, even even in this, you know, quote unquote medieval time, you know, the idea that that all paths connect and, and can lead to everywhere. So this is when we first have a writer, a black writer comes along and they hide behind the the, the uh, log, just like they do in the movie. Uh, Frodo finds that he wants to put the ring on, but decides, not. you know, he's able to resist it and not do it. Um, the strange writer, they think he's just a big person, maybe a man, but Frodo feels that there's something else going on with him. Sam reveals the story from the gaffer, um, revealing that, that it was a ring wraith, uh, which we learn later. We don't know that yet, but one of these strange writers talking to him. And <laughs> this is something that is also true in the movie. These ring wraiths are like really um, friendly, not friendly, but like cordial with people like c- just like questioning them and then they're like oh no he's not here and they're like okay and then they leave and like you know what i mean like the guy calls his dog on him he's like all right i guess i'll leave yeah they're creatures in the movie yeah well yeah well and even in the movie though like i don't know it feels like early on they're not i don't know it's like murderous as they could be you know uh like i don't know it's, it's, well when they get to like to think of these like spectral beings like not just killing everyone
1: yeah when they get further o- along they uh yeah, I guess you're right. They don't murder everyone in their path, which they easily could do. They could just kill everybody they yeah. come in contact with. But they are like, you know, they, there's like the whole the pillow stabbing scene when they get to the, yeah. the is it Bree? When they get to Brie.
0: Yeah, I don't know. It's, it, it's interesting. That's something I'm going to kind of track here. Like the evolution of these ringwraiths, they just seem like they're not someone who would do well with people lying to them and just be like okay he's not gonna tell me the truth i guess i'll write on now <laughs> i could see that yeah you know that makes sense because <laughs> like like the farmer maggot like tells him off later you know what i mean like that kind of stuff happens so anyway so yeah the hobbits continue to not be that worried by all this stuff right like something weird happens and they're like oh that's creepy but then they're like ah, oh, let's sing a song and eat another feast and they like sit down not a feast but like eat a large meal um, so they're eating meals, drinking, you know, singing songs, and then all of a sudden they hear hooves again, and they're like, oh, shit, maybe we shouldn't be singing so loud. Um, but then, like, it doesn't find them. They're able to hide, and then, um, you know, they go right back to it. Um, they also then find uh, some... They run into some elves on the road uh, who uh, he can... Uh, Frodo identifies them as high elves by their song, and he talks to them, and, and we learn that they are... Uh, exiles that a lot of their kindred has left Middle-earth, but they're still around. Frodo tells them about the Black Riders, and that kind of piques their interest. And he reveals that he can speak Elvish, all this stuff, right? So the the elves take them along, and they go to this, like, camp. Uh, they sing when they see the stars and the constellation. They have an elven meal, which is, like, this, you know, amazing meal. They drink cider as golden as a summer afternoon. Um, which I also wanted to take a moment to highlight how brilliant that metaphor is. (laughs) Um, or in really just a lot of the metaphors that Tolkien makes here, because, um, just as an example, this one here, golden is a summer afternoon talking about cider. Um, the reason it's so good is it's not just a one point metaphor, right? It's not just comparing the look of it. There's also a, a carried uh, connotations and like almost like baggage with 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 the comparison, because summer afternoons are warm. Summer afternoons often are something people think of fondly. Um, so there's all this like positive vibes built into that metaphor to where you're not only comparing the color, but you're also bringing along all these like positive feelings. Right. Yeah. So I, I think that's like when you're crafting metaphors as a writer, um, that's something to keep in mind. Like what kind of um, other other connections you're making with that metaphor beyond the like apparent one. That's cool. Yeah, I hadn't even thought about that. That's really cool. One of the elves names is Gildor, and he talks to Frodo about knowing that there's an enemy pursuing him, but not knowing why. And he recommends that he's like, you need to talk to Gandalf more because Gandalf knows about these things. And Frodo says, well, yeah, he was supposed to be here two days ago. I guess we didn't also say that. And Frodo, uh, or Gandalf was supposed to meet up with him, but didn't on his birthday. And so it's kind of mysterious why Gandalf isn't here. And Frodo says he wants to know where he's going to find courage. And Gildor basically tells him, like, take along friends, take people with you who are willing to go with you and that that will help you on your journey. And that's the end of chapter three. So, yeah, this elf stuff, we don't get any of that in the movie.
1: No, we we see, I think once the fellowship has started, or like once they see Aragorn, we start to see elves leaving, leaving um, Middle-earth, but we don't, yeah, yeah. This, this this whole scene has nothing to do with what's in the movie.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. He meets some elves on the road while he's basically in the Shire still. Like, that's not something, definitely not something that happens in the movie, right? Like, we don't see elves until he gets to Rivendell. So chapter four is called A Shortcut to Mushrooms and uh so they wake up and they find some food and drink leftover from the elves they start eating that um it's a lot of eating and just like it's like and it's funny because they're also like kind of complaining about how their backs hurt because they've been on the road yeah. and all this stuff and like it's just funny because it's like setting up like the idea that this is hard for them just goes to show like oh my god how hard is it going to be when they're like truly in danger and don't have as enough food to have like all these huge meals all the time and all this stuff right yeah um Frodo starts feeling guilt, though. He starts thinking about how, he, you know, he doesn't want to take all of his friends with him because he doesn't feel that like he has the right to do that. And he talks to Sam, and Sam basically says, like, you know, Gandalf told me not to leave you, and I don't mean to. And, like, he's taking it on as his, like, personal personal mission that he's going to stay with him, and he wants to see it through. He feels like he has, like, this, like, calling. And And Frodo finally kind of says, okay, you know, it sounds like you really mean to come with me, but it sounds like he's still thinking, like, maybe just Sam. Um, and right now, it's just him, Sam, and Pippin. So they go, they keep going, and they see the black figure again. They're able to remain hidden. It doesn't find him. They stop and eat, start singing again. And this is what I, I keep coming back to this. Like, they know they're being pursued, and yet they keep stopping to sing and, like, eat these big meals. So he does it again. And, um, and then they stop because they hear this, like, wailing sound, uh, which I think of, you know, the, the very evocative, like, ring race sound from the movie. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so these hobbits are just like they're really naive and innocent, right? And like I think uh, Tolkien, you know, is really driving that home. It's you know they don't they're not picking up on the danger. It seems like to me. They get to uh, Farmer Maggot's house um, quickly. He has this history with 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 uh, Frodo where he stole from him in the past. But he invites them inside. They share a beer, and they start talking about all the weird things that have been happening uh, happening around town. And Frodo says he needs to go to the to the ferry. Maggot says he will give him a ride. They take him to the ferry and uh when when they're coming along they they think they've come across another you know uh dark rider, which if they had, would be kind of the end of them, but instead it ends up being mary um who has shown up because he's been waiting for them to arrive so this is where Mary finally joins the group. The four of them go across the river and when they get to the other side, you know actually that happens in the next chapter, but when they get to the other side um they 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 see the the black. Uh, another black writer on the other side.
1: Yeah, and this is like, in my opinion, I, I know this isn't the f- the fellowship proper, but this the idea of these four hobbits. It's the first fellowship, right? right? The four hobbits traveling right. together. You know, they have the most dangerous, deadly thing in the world with them, and it's just four. Yeah. They don't know, it, right? But- <laughs> the four hobbits who are just yeah. traveling and laughing and, like you said, eating feasts and singing, and it's so. And I said before, like the juxtaposition is like the major thing that I think sticks out to me as we get into this stuff where, you know, they can't, they don't have enough food. They're like struggling and and, like just to see the the difference between these two. I don't know. It's really effective.
0: Yeah, for sure. Well, let's get into this last chapter. It's short. It's a short one. It's called uh, Conspiracy Unmasked. This is the last chapter we're covering here. They head to the house that Frodo has purchased. And he sees some of his things in the new place and he feels a little bit more at home, but he's also sad because he knows he can't stay. They have a bath, have a feast, talk afterwards. And it's revealed that Merry and Pippin have this thing called this conspiracy where they've been um, knowing that like something's up with Bilbo, something's up with this ring. They've seen him use it and turn invisible at, a, at one point. And so they kind of had this like ongoing conspiracy where they're trying to like learn about stuff. And they reveal that the head conspirator is Sam, who's kind of been like the head information gatherer. And they've all been like snooping on Bilbo and Frodo over the years and like gathering all this information. So they know a lot of what's actually going on here. And they know that something is dangerous with this ring that and the enemy is after Frodo. And they they have to have this conversation where they convince him like, we're going to come with you. We've decided we want to help you. We know that it's dangerous, but you can trust you can trust us to, to help you. And there's also an additional one there, Thaddy Bulger, um, who's going to stay behind and pretend to be Frodo and kind of like act like he, he he's Frodo and, 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 and so that the rest of Hobbiton doesn't know he's left because we're still very <laughs> they're still very into like covering their journey, um, which seems like a good way to sing another song. That guy. Yeah, well, he even says like the Tolkien says like he didn't realize how dangerous it was for him to be doing right. that. Right. And then, yeah, so Frodo finally, he's like frustrated with them for lying and about how much they knew. But then he decides like they seem like they're like true friends and I'm going to let them come with me because they are like really bent on it. And they decide to leave before daybreak in the morning. Um, they're going to go through the old forest, which is said to be very dangerous. But yeah, he he stays. Behind, the other guy stays behind. And then we end uh, this chapter with Frodo having a dream where he's looking out of a high window out at trees and he can like hear creatures moving around in, in the trees he yeah, also hears the sound of a sea, even though he's never heard the sea before, and he sees a vision of a tall white tower. Um, so that's all interesting, kind of I think, allusions to things that will happen later. Yeah. Just to wrap this up here, wrap up our
1: coverage. I think the so this dream. What do you think it represents? Without uh, being as non-spoiler as possible, don't talk about the white tower, but the rest of it, the sea with the saltiness, <laughs> and um, like the fact that he hasn't been there before. Do you think that this is some sort of like ring? Uh, is this like the ring, like manipulating and kind of making him see these things, or is this literally just like a foreshadowing dream that Tolkien wanted him to have?
0: You know, I don't know. Um, I feel like this is just foreshadowing. Um, I also thought maybe we were going to get a little bit of. I thought maybe like Gandalf looking out the high, looking out the t- um the tower and seeing because we know that Gandalf is busy with other things from the movie, yeah. um and so maybe he's also having a vision kind of through Gandalf here. But yeah, I don't know about the sea stuff um i don't know what did you have thoughts about what you i just know because i have, was trying to think it? of
1: what the sea specifically represented because i couldn't think of anything I, maybe i think it may have just been the idea that like he's gonna see a lot of things and experience a lot of things that he hasn't yeah. seen before and like like the vividness of the fact that he can like smell the sea and he sees it and he's never even in his waking days has never seen it before is like a yeah. idea of things to come
0: yeah man so uh just like looking back at these first five chapters, I, I just have to say again, like I was kind of surprised at how slowly this this story kind of gets going. It feels like we're finally kind of getting going here. But I like these five chapters, too, though. And, and, and we've talked about how it really it really sets up Hobbiton as this like home, like home place, like homestead to be valued and it shows where these hobbits come from, what their background is and how unprepared they are for what's going to happen later, which i think is also like sets up a interesting conflict that is at the heart of this novel that i think makes it so powerful for people. Yeah. Um and why it's been so so often uh copied by by writers who try and set up some si- similar situation as this.
1: Yeah, i agree i just it's just reading this first these first five chapters i want to watch the movie so bad but i don't have to wait like a few more weeks
0: <laughs> um yeah we should say um our next our next episode is going to cover a lot more material because we won't have you know bio and stuff like that to go through so we're going to cover a bunch of material in the next episode um we'll, we'll, we'll put out how many chapters and then our final episode we'll finish up the book and do final thoughts uh, before we get to the movie, which will be the fourth episode in this in this series of episodes for uh, for fellowship.
1: Yeah. Last thing I wanted to say is just that, like, I think we're going to look back on this episode in these five chapters when we're deep in the story and we're in the hardships that they're going yeah. through. And I think we're going to be like, damn, we wish that these characters were back in those situations. But I'm excited to see where we go <laughs> with this story and, and kinds of things that we dig into.
0: All right. So that's going to be it. If you'd like to connect with us, we are all over social media. We're on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Ink to Film on all three. We'd love to have you come join join us on there and talk with us about our projects.
1: Yeah. Also, if you'd like to connect with us, you can send us feedback. We'd love to hear your thoughts on the episode, on Lord of the Rings, on our, our upcoming projects. And if you wanted to send any of that feedback, it would be to inktofilm at gmail.com.
0: Yeah. And you can also sign up for our newsletter, which you can find on our website. Um, there's, you know, ink uh dot com. And you can find uh, out how, how to sign up for that. That's a new thing we just started. Um, also, you know, we'd love to have you help us support this podcast, especially if you enjoyed it. Um, the things you can do to help us uh, would be to rate and review it on especially on iTunes is really helpful uh, or anywhere. Um, and then also just share it, uh, tell your friends about it, share it on your own social media. Like if you like this episode, retweet it, you know what I mean? Like get, get the word out.
1: And lastly, we just want to say thank you to audible. Audible has been nice enough to give us that affiliate link. So if you want to use that, it'll really help us out. And that again is audibletrialcom forward slash ink to film. And also thank you to music archive for the use of our intro
0: and outro music. All right. So I think that's it for our coverage for this the first five chapters of fellowship of the ring. We'll be back next week with the big middle chunk. uh, And then we'll finish up the following week. So uh, hopefully you join us for that until then I'm Luke and I'm James. Bye.